0: Hello, we are live on YouTube. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I am one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining us for our review of episode 11 of Andor, Daughter of Farrahs. With me this evening for our legal and geek analysis is Stephen Tolofield, Christine Peake, Bethany Blanton, and Thomas Harper. We should be joined by one other uh, when we get rolling. So, everybody, starting with Steven, what did you think of this episode?
1: Um, I, there was a lot going on that was kind of recapping a lot of things. Um, so there wasn't a lot of forward movement, although some bombshells got communicated to some of the major characters, which were great to see. But, of course, the lightsaber spaceship, probably a key moments. Um, that was amazing. I was really excited about that.
2: Excellent. Christine? Yeah, definitely. The stars for me were definitely the dogfight. I knew something was going to happen, and I knew it was going to be good, but I wasn't prepared for the the red lasers, which look certainly like they're lightsabers. Um, but it was awesome, as Stephen says. Um, the other stars for me were uh, B, B obviously, um, with his very human sounding emotions. And um, that conversation between Luther and Saw um, is really interesting and intense and great acting. Um, but there's a lot of other great details too, um, like when Nimick's manifesto starts playing and um, the old lonely abandoned beach, um, now that the empire has cracked down. So a lot of, a lot of things to like about this episode.
3: Bethany?
4: This this episode, I felt like it was moving really quickly. One of the stars for me is was just seeing the beach because of the throwback or throw forward to Rogue One. Uh that honestly very much plucked my heartstrings at least. So I kind of left that episode with like, uh, yeah, this this is not this is not a uh, happily ever after story for really anyone in the show. Um. Yeah.
0: Cost <laughs> of freedom, Thomas.
5: I I really enjoyed it. I sat there like on the edge of my seat, thinking as the rest of you did. Cassian really has an opposite sort of relationship with the beach than most people. <laughs> like, um, little concerned about Cassian's operational security. Just going. And using the payphone on the beach where he got captured, not too long before, but uh, yeah, seeing the Fondor in action, uh, watching that built-in droid in the the sort of suspense as Luthen is just sort of coldly calculating exactly what he needs to do. He's been like mentally preparing for this moment for a long time, and it was cool seeing that particular capital ship in action. It's uh, that. Uh, they name it the uh, a Cantwell class after Colin Cantwell, one of the uh, the OG designers for um, for Star Wars, and uh, that particular design was like a precursor to to what became the Star Destroyer. So it was really nice. Cantwell died uh, within the last year, so it was a, a neat little fitting tribute. Uh, although his design got messed all up.
0: <laughs> the those are like the proper fan service you know to to see with honoring someone who'll make it uh i thought we saw that design in uh, rebels but i could be wrong that they had an intelligent ship that had a bunch of dishes on it
5: yeah you're yeah. thinking uh you're thinking of a modified gazanti cruiser that uh but but spot on with the the remembering that episode this ship has been seen in live action but only in the imperial recruiting commercial in solo you see it very briefly i have a addled condition
0: that's terrifyingly <laughs> impressive so well well done i i think this series is going to get emmy nominations so uh just because it is Phenomenal uh, with the writing and the storytelling and what they've uh, put together. So uh, very, very impressed. So, uh, but that, looking forward to what comes next. So let's get in. Let's get into our legal analysis. So out of the gate, there's a discussion about a permit to close Rick's Road for Marva's funeral. And that raises a question of when a permit can be required for such an event, who brought that up and who I'm, I'm delighted to talk about time, place and manner restrictions for uh, uh, free speech. So take it away. Whoever added that to the outline.
2: It was me, Josh. So I added um, that one. Um, I thought that conversation between Dedra and I think the other officer's name is. Uh, Tigo, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, so he says that, well, they're just going to deny the permit, and the people of Ferrex are just going to add this to their list of grievances, and she tells him, no, no, you're going to grant the permit, but keep it small, limit the time, limit the numbers so that we can put them in a box um, and stand back and watch. Um, And there are certain types of events that may require a permit consistent with the First Amendment, um, and that would include something like a march or a parade that does not stay on the sidewalk or events that require blocking the traffic or a street closure. Um, The government does have an interest in traffic control and safety. And so um, the courts, when they've considered those types of permitting schemes, though, have said that such a scheme has to meet certain constitutional requirements. So it cannot delegate overly broad discretion to the government official and further any permit scheme controlling the time, place and manner of speech must not be based on the content of the message. It must be narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest, and it must leave open ample alternatives for communication. So when the other officer says, oh, we're just going to deny it, um, under that rule, a a, a permitting scheme that was controlling for time, place, and manner couldn't um, allow the government leeway to grant or deny the permit based on whether the event is controversial or whether unpopular views might be expressed. Um, Because Marva has been very politically active um, recently on Ferrex you know, something like her political views or her work as a daughter of Farrick's, that wouldn't be a content neutral basis for denying a permit, and neither would the abstract possibility that her funeral procession might rile up the crowd. Courts have also observed that a listener's reaction to the speech isn't a content neutral basis for regulation. So here the empire probably isn't concerned about the First Amendment implications. They realize that it is in their own not in their own self-interest to deny the permit. Um, But one of her other lines in that scene implicates another aspect of those constitutional requirements, specifically the narrow tailoring. So the regulation has to be narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest. And she says, well, limit the time, limit the numbers. And so a lot of permit ordinances do give discretion to officials to impose conditions. So, for example, they may allow them to set the route um, or they may impose conditions on something like the sound level of amplification equipment and those restrictions may or may not pass First Amendment muster. Um, They may not if they're unnecessary for the whatever the government interest is. So if it's not actually necessary for traffic control or to ensure public safety, um, they may not pass. here, um, I mean, certainly limiting the numbers, if you're closing a road, you certainly, you know, you don't want people to be crushed, for example. And so it may make sense to limit the number of attendees. Um, I don't know if we see anything that suggests that Dedra's limit on time is really tied to a legitimate governmental interest of the empire, but um, we'll, we'll see here. So they, they do allow the event to go, to go forward. They, they do say they're gonna grant the permit.
0: And well said on what goes into a time, place, and manner restriction, because it's not just free reign of we want to close the road. It could be a traffic jam. Now, granted, the Empire doesn't have an altruistic purpose for this. There have been other podcasters who are just spinning wild thinking that Marva's alive and like it's uh, some complex trap being set for the Empire. It's her attendees. To honor her, that doesn't make sense for a trap for imperials. So there's, there are people who are having problems letting go. I think is the the. I can't thing. make her into a brick. No, <laughs> it's just she looked really old and sick, like with a glow of death about her. So now the question is: Is Cassian dumb enough? To go back for that service, considering all that's that's going on uh you think he was well, he was
4: dumb enough to to like call back
0: he he was that was that was also <laughs> stupid, but no uh...
5: names Cassie and Cassie and Cassie
4: yeah cass Cass <laughs> <laughs>
0: it just like he should not have called, and if he did like you should have been from like a different planet and then leave uh yeah uh again uh, something that luther taught him that he seems to have forgotten after his incar- incarceration but that brings us to how he got to the beach in the first place and it's from running around on another beach where they decided to just take a fisherman's quad jumper this raises the issue of attempted hijacking that's a plane Hijacking a plane is air piracy, which under our laws, 49 U.S.C. 46502A defines the crime as seizing or exercising control over an aircraft by force, violence, threat of force or violence, or any form of intimidation with wrongful intent. They totally plan to steal the quad jumper, just run by the fishermen and leave. Now, they're stopped because there are traps, but that does not give them, you know, you can be charged with attempt. We charge people for attempted crimes contrary to what some people think, and that is an issue. Now, we do get the big turn, but anyone want to talk about the attempt issue with stealing a quad trumper that looks mighty familiar?
1: Yeah, all I could think of when we saw the quad jumper was, first of all, the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, and um, <laughs> hearing hearing quad jumper in Ray's adorable accents, <laughs> that was all I could think of. <laughs> um, but also, um, it struck me that um, Melshi was so impulsive to try to jump and make a run for the ship, and Cassian just kind of followed him. I would be curious about whether there was enough of an agreement there to um, sort of substantiate a conspiracy but then again and or runs towards the quadrumper that's a substantial step towards the completion of the crime so even though it was a very impulsive split-second decision that's probably enough to establish his liability too yeah who
0: i get they've been on in prison for months they want out they don't know how what's happening lord knows how far they had to swim. And the idea of like, we'll just steal somebody's vehicle in order to get off this planet. Uh, It's like, we're not going to bother negotiating. We're just going to try to jump these guys and take their ship. So, uh, but again, raises the issue of what comes next of non-lethal defense of property. So... You can't use lethal force to defend property like your house. For example, you can't have a moat with alligators and a minefield in front of your home. You can't have spring guns and you don't get to use lethal force to defend property. Our fishermen have non-lethal force set up with this net trap that that shoots our protagonists. Now, California's jury instruction uh number 5.43 states when conditions are present, present, which under the law justify a person in using force in defense of property, that person may use the degree and extent of force as would appear to a reasonable person placed in the same position and seeing and knowing with Uh, excuse me, what the resisting person then sees and knows to be reasonably necessary to prevent immediate injury threatened to the property. Any use of force beyond that limit is excessive and unjustified. And anyone using excessive force is legally responsible for the consequences thereof. The question here is, this is a trap. So it's a net trap that, that hits and or does the law allow that? So it's not lethal, but it's still a trap. Who wants to take issue with this?
1: Well, I looked into it a little bit. And you're it, muted, I, Stephen. Oh, is it still muted? No, we you're not.
0: You. Now now we can hear you. Okay,
1: great. It just a little bit of delay. Um, so the, um, I looked into it a little bit and it, I came at it from a torts perspective um, that the people who were injured by the non-lethal force that was triggered as a trap um, wouldn't be able to sue um, if the landowner um, uh, found that it was necessary to have that trap, the use of that particular device is reasonable. And three, as long as the trap or the device was not hidden. Um, the the point is that the law requires these sort of non-lethal things like barbed wire or spiked rails. Um, they have to be visible so that they function as a deterrent for people to prevent them from coming on the property. The hidden traps don't function as a deterrent. They're just there to kind of hurt people. <laughs> so those those are not allowed. Um, so even though these traps were kind of non-lethal and kind of funny and gross and weird in a Star Wars way, they probably would not um, be. Pre- Privilege in a way that would prevent Cassian and Melshi for suing the aliens for any injury. And I wonder that, if there's a, oh, go ahead.
0: Was about, I was I was going to ask, does anyone think that the traps were hidden because they were, they're visible, but you would have to know what you're looking at.
5: The pressure plate may, may or may not have been, depends on, I guess your savviness. But I also wonder to, to me that the net, it almost seemed like Mon Calamari in design, right? It was squishy and uh like gelatinous. I don't know. Um, it's something like out of it. Like, yeah, it's gross. <laughs> it's like classic yeah. Star Wars. But um it didn't seem to hurt them, but the the idea and and maybe I uh, I haven't looked into this whether foreseeability of injury as a result would be a consideration, but the idea that if you netted somebody with this pressure plate trap that they were likely to fall over and maybe hurt themselves. So in other words, the net itself, the squishiness and stuff, that's not going to hurt you. That's not foreseeable, but you could predict reasonably that somebody could get hurt once they got netted and fell over. Um, I don't know if that's a consideration with traps that aren't inherently dangerous or designed to injure, but it's an interesting question here.
4: I would think that that culturally they could argue that maybe that's a common defense that they have for thieves mm-hmm. or hijackers or maybe even if there's larger wildlife around or something that could interfere with their processes or their fishing or anything like that so it's it's possible that that's something that's common for them, but of course, I mean Cassian wouldn't know that,
5: yeah. It could be, yeah, that's a great point. It could be set up to watch their backs basically while they, you know, against wildlife while they fish
4: or wild humans
5: or wild prisoners.
0: I'm (laughs) thinking of the anti-piracy devices that uh, cargo ships have when transiting the uh, Straits of Malacca, because that's where modern day pirates hit ships and they do have high pressure water cannons. So like those granted they're operated, so it's not like they just turn on and wash a pirate away. Uh, But it's, it's like pirates might be thinking, I didn't expect to get hit with a, you know, 500 PSI stream of water today. Uh, But on the flip side, you were planning an act of piracy. So uh, what, how's that control? So, uh, and it, But so, again, a lot to think about.
2: Yeah, I think these were really fact-bound questions. I looked at CalCrim 3476, which is another set. It's just a different set of jury instructions, but it's really similar to um, the one that Josh read off. It basically affirms that owners can use reasonable force to protect property from imminent harm. Um, and then I tried to find, to see if there's any cases that applied that section of the restatement that Stephen found but I came up empty. I didn't do a very lengthy search, but I think it just comes down to the facts, right? Like what is customary on Narkina 5? Maybe the nets are commonly used. And um, even if um, maybe you don't realize what the little box is, it, it did make a noise and a red light went off before it activated. So there was some kind of warning. So I feel like you could argue those things um, either way. Um, maybe it's not an op- as open and obvious as barbed wire, but it's not exactly concealed either. Um, my thought about that whole fact pattern was um, it's not really clear what Freedy intends to do with that blade that pops out. <laughs> it kind of struck me that he was brandishing and maybe threatening them with deadly force. And um, if if that is what he was doing, I, I questioned whether that would be justified in circumstances where Andor and Melshi are really already incapacitated in the nets. Maybe deadly force is probably not warranted. Um, but luckily, you know, things, things all work out for them.
0: Yeah, nobody ends up being turned into live bait for their the squishies. And because uh, they're fishermen, we were upset about What's happening to their environment? Uh, but yeah, a lot, lot to unpack there. Uh, good analysis, everybody. Well, let's get into the issue of uh, oh, wills and trusts. So Marva appears to have died. I think she's dead. Raises the issue of ownership of B. You know, when we've never seen such devotion in a droid before. Now this is, this is like full on puppy, except that the puppy's basically immortal and can be handed down as property and can outlive the owner, which is the opposite of what we humans have with dogs. Uh, it does raise the issue that to a Wookiee, we're the pet, uh, just because of their lot longer lifespans. Uh, but, uh, let's take the issue of who owns the droid and who added this i we'll wonder say if
5: it, oh. the, I, I was gonna say that the the first question that popped into my mind that's that's necessary here is did marva live long enough to did she have any enough foresight to to have an estate plan to have a will you know when we talk about uh a state law, what happens to your stuff when you die? The, the first question is, did you leave instructions? And the instructions that are recognized by law, uh classically, it's a will. It doesn't have to be written out with a cover sheet and all fancily bound by an attorney. But the you know, the court uh is gonna look to to your the the uh, your instructions that you've written down. Uh, and and attested to signed to and i don't know it's not clear whether she would have had something like that done um you know i it's i don't know statistics on this in terms of how many folks actually have an estate plan but uh, i don't know that marva planned necessarily far in advance to to die and um i'm not sure what her if she would have had the fourth foresight to to um to draft a will uh And if you don't have a will, there's there's a whole set of default rules called intestacy that kicks in uh, that that uh, functions to distribute your property uh, in sort of a default manner.
0: Yes, intestate succession varies state by state, even though it's generally flows downhill. And but with her son gone. That raises the question, does she have any other relatives that things could go to, or would thing or all of her property go to the state? A lot of folks get very uncomfortable with the idea of writing a will. Uh, I just talked with my brother about, you know, friends of his who need to draft a will because the guy's having surgery, and doesn't want to. So there are people who just the idea of death frightens them so much, they don't want to plan for it. And that's really ugly to everyone you love because it leaves a mess for them to deal with on who is supposed to get what or how, you know, if you you wanted your college to to benefit from your estate, like you need to write that down. You just can't hope somebody does it. And so, well, everybody knew I wanted you know, X property to go to Davis, that needs to be in writing. And if it's not, it's not enforceable. So uh, wills have to be written down. Now, luckily uh, you can have a holographic will, will, which is not as cool as it sounds, uh, but it's handwritten and it has to be signed. Some states say it has to be dated. Uh, that is one way to get around the witness requirement of a typed up will. Because if you have a typed will, you then enter the requirements for there has to be witnesses. And that thus raises the specter of what does your state say about a contemporaneous witness? Is it someone who watches you sign it? Do they have to be in the room with you or not? So Marva does not seem oh, People seem to know her wishes. Uh, if you know that you're going to end up as a brick, uh, the fact that there's they want to do the viewing on Rick's Road, all of that hints towards a basic estate plan. Uh, and if she is a, we don't know what it means to be a past president of Ferrex, but if she is a past head of state or a mayor, you know, there's generally plans for that and that could be uh, it might be an incomplete will but it could still be part of her intent for what's supposed to happen after she passes yeah like in
5: star wars you could have a holographic holographic will yeah literally be be yeah. just projects it he's like here we go here's all her wishes
0: i <laughs> don't know if those would be valid under <laughs> all our laws even if it is yeah. a re- video recording or a holographic recording of someone saying you know, I want all of my property go to person X and I'm of sound mind. I can remember, you know, minute to minute. Is that good enough? Mm -hmm. Now there, there are darker stories. So there was a Coast Guard ship lost on the Great Lakes in a storm and ship sank. Guys in the engine room survived the sinking. They painted their wills on the bulkheads waiting for the air to run out. Uh, so, again, there are those type of, of horror stories. But, again, that would be a valid will. Uh, anywho. What,
5: one, okay. one question that jumped to mind that's, that's really central here is, what about Cassian? Cassian's not uh, a natural-born child of Marva. Uh, you know, he's an adoptive child. And how does the law treat that in, in those scenarios? And you know, fortunately for Cassian, the answer is uh generally speaking, I, I will assume that Marva sort of formally adopted Cassian. We'll just assume that. But they're treated as natural born children. So the same um, you know, if you uh and and this this goes even if uh in, in I think just about every state, maybe I think it's 44 out of uh, out of 50 states account for adoptive children, even if they're not named in the will. So say Marva had drafted her will. She's happy with it and then stumbled upon Cassian. And uh, took her took him under her wing and adopted him, but never changed her will again in just about every state. Um, he is an adopted child would be provided for under the will so if she said hey all my stuff goes to my children the law would automatically read him in as one of those children even if Cassian Andor isn't named anywhere in the will and if she didn't have the will he's also in in pretty good shape most places in the U.S. because he's treated in that same class of individuals so intestate succession often looks at sort of classes of relatives and classically if you don't have a surviving spouse which is the case here with marva uh those natural or the the children of of the decedent of the deceased person are going to be next in line and so cassian generally speaking would be uh taken care of under those default rules for marva's sake this is a good example a classic case in uh, that that star wars can use us to teach us write a will down Make a will. You don't want to leave all these open questions. You don't want to leave Cassie and having to fight for B and poor B. Like, who do I go to? I want to be with Cass and uh, and and meanwhile, the empire is deciding where your stuff goes. That's not a situation you want to be in.
2: Right. I had a similar concern as um, Thomas with respect to a worst case scenario where Marva didn't leave a will. Um, there was no formal adoption, and so it's unclear with the what would happen with the intestacy and so I don't I don't know the parameters of this for other states, but California does recognize the doctrine of equitable adoption. um, Which is basically a doctrine that allows a person who was accepted and treated as a natural or adopted child and usually as to whom adoption was promised or contemplated but never performed to share in the inheritance, Um, the California Supreme Court has said, you have to prove that by clear and convincing evidence of intent to adopt, but that can be done in different ways. So it could be by proof of an unperformed or express agreement or promise to adopt, but it could also be something like the decedent's statement of his or her intent to adopt or the representation to the community at large that the claimant in this case, Cassian, was the decedent's legally adopted child. And so there could be other avenues to to avoid the result of B just a sheeting to the state, which could be Farrick's, but in the worst case scenario, could also be the empire, which would be disastrous for B, probably because the empire wouldn't treat him very well, but also because B contains a lot of information that could be very damaging to the people of Farrick's.
0: That's fascinating, because it sounds like we have Marvin adoptions in California. And uh, that's just fascinating. For, for those who are Californians, we don't have common law marriage here. So some states do, like you live together for seven years. You could be viewed as husband and wife just by living together that long. We don't have that. But we do have Marvin v. Marvin, which was Uh, In the late 70s, it was the basis of the Saturday Night Live skit, Jane, You Ignorant Slut, uh, with Marvin Gaye having his divorce from a woman he wasn't married to. And the law recognized that they had a contract. She changed her name. They lived as husband and wife. And it established you could have a contractual relationship or, um, you know, something similar to marriage, as long as the consideration is not, uh, sex, like you, that can't be the consideration for, for the contract. And so we can have Marvin marriages and it sounds like a Marvin adoption. If you were performing all the things that look like you've adopted someone, I find that fascinating.
5: Just for the record, uh, Josh, because you have such a magnificent Star Wars and and other sci-fi collection of things, uh, will everyone on this call has witnessed you have equitably adopted me? So uh, in the untimely (laughs) event of your demise, um, you know, as your son, I'll gladly accept all that stuff.
0: Yeah, but that That would cut you They'll cut you off from your, your biological family. So <laughs> that, that's the
3: downside.
5: Well, look. They don't have any stuff. Just, yeah. <laughs> Do my parents have a sweet lightsaber collection? I don't think so. <laughs> Choices yeah. have to be made.
0: <laughs> right. I, I Thank you. Uh, I did just get the Kenobi. And uh, yeah, it is glorious. And See, you're,
5: you're making the case for me.
4: Thomas, if you is throw all, me an extra lightsaber, I'll witness. Bethany's my sister.
5: Yeah, Bethany's my sister, so and,
4: and to, witness.
5: All in the family.
4: No this conflicts is all, there.
1: This is all very Star Wars, all these like reveals yes. of family relationships. It's the legal geeks twist at the end of the season.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So um uh, well, you know, it's a it's a big fan family. So uh Jordan's with us. And Jordan, glad you're here, buddy. Hey everybody, so, sorry
3: I'm late.
1: It's okay. It's
0: okay. We are going to talk about Luthen's great escape. And whoever came up with that idea of the great escape, well done.
3: Thank you. Was, was that you? That was me. Why don't
0: you take it away, man? All nice. you take it away. So
3: I was going through this, figuring out topics for it in this uh Seemed like a ripe one of what exactly, uh, does Luthen rack up crime wise in his uh, dealings with the Imperial cruiser? Um, which I keep wanting to call an interdictor cruiser, but isn't. Um, somebody here knows the name of that ship, Thomas.
5: Which one, the, the actual. The interdictor cruiser has the hyperspace
3: wells. No, 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 no. The one that um, jams Luthen's comms oh, and tractor yeah, yeah. Them. It's them.
5: It's an arrestor cruiser. I can't well Thank confess. you. That's right.
3: So with Luthen's interaction first. with the arrestor cruiser. Uh, first of all, I think it needs to be, the, the question needs to be asked of, is it a valid um, detention for the arrestor cruiser to jam Luthen's comms? And lock him in a tractor beam, uh, just because he's kind of hanging out in this area of space. And I'm gonna go no. Uh, I'm not a naval law expert, but it seems like just because you're hanging out in an area where uh, you know they've seen some piracy happen, doesn't give them carte blanche to say, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? By the way, we're going to tractor beam you while you answer the question. Uh, certainly in the more civilian world, just because you're in a high crime area doesn't mean the police get to pull you over or stop you and demand your identification if you're just driving through. Uh, so, no, I don't think they have a particularly valid reason to detain him. Um uh, Especially not once his, uh, his code clears. Now, interestingly, we know the code is a humongous lie, but they don't seem to. Uh, it is, it is a crime to use someone else's identification. So while we're on the, uh, the subject of the code, we can tack that one on there. I assume it's some kind of FAA violation to falsify your transponder codes. I'm just, I don't know that for sure, but I'm willing to make that assumption. Uh, Josh, do you know the answer to that?
0: I don't remember the code section, but I I, I would bet money the FAR does not allow you to use somebody else's transponder. Um, It's been – I sold it when I was in high school. It's been a while.
3: That's still more recently than me, so (laughs) – uh so that's i mean that's Luthen's first real uh crime here is he falsifies his his transponder codes uh then he starts racking them up real real quick the uh the faked accident to his thruster it isn't anything really bad but then he starts like Shooting at them, uh, which, as an aside, is a genius way to get out of a tractor beam. I can't believe no one else in Star Wars has thought of. Oh, they're pulling on us. Let's throw stuff at them. The dish that projects it being right on the front there seems like a
1: pretty major design flaw to me. But you know, Star Wars has those (laughs) kind of
3: routinely. Again, no railings in the entire original series or original trilogy. Um, so damaging the Imperial Cruiser, he starts racking up some stuff there. Uh, then they launch TIE Fighters at him, and he blows them up. So y- you got to figure in addition to the property damage attack on the murder of the TIE Fighter pilots to that. Um, and then uh, fleeing the stop, because they definitely don't have... Well, this I guess this is two parts. One, they don't have... A legal justification to stop them you still can't run um you you can't uh, flee and evade an illegal stop you just get to fight about it later in court legally fight about it don't actually like physically fight with people um so even if they don't have uh, a justification to stop him originally fleeing the stop gives them all the justification they're ever going to need, it's also an additional crime. You're telling me that if I want to
5: use my lasers installed on my driver and passenger side door, I can't just do that? Yeah. <laughs> I got to have a word with uh, the people who installed it. I was assured that I could use them in any scenario. It's, yeah, it, I'm going to have to
4: return the alligators in the boat I have to the people <laughs> that told me that was, you know... Throwback to
5: <laughs> earlier, my <laughs> bad decisions. Sorry, dad, I'm, I'm making bad decisions here. I'm, they're being revealed. There's an interesting intersection here with um, with naval law and and sort of the, the law of the sea, if you will, because the the business of interdicting vessels, so stopping vessels, like all of Star Wars starts with a, a, a naval interdiction above Tatooine, um, and It it gets complicated because the the big question is, where are you being interdicted? In our world, there are coastlines and depending on what distant what coastline you're off of and what distance you are from shore, there are various uh, either domestic or international laws that govern uh, what rules are in effect, how far out from shore uh, that coastal nation uh, can enforce its laws and do certain things. Um, you know, classically, most people have heard of sort of the high seas that has a legal context to it, right? That's beyond the, the, the territorial jurisdiction of any coastal nation. And coincidentally, it's, uh, statistically where most pirate attacks happen. Um, but as you get closer into shore, The coastal nations uh, laws or their ability to to uh, to do things, stop vessels, conduct searches, uh, all sorts of things. It gets stronger and stronger until you're in territorial waters uh, within a few miles off of uh, off of the coastline. And that's where it's uh, classically the strongest. That's where it, you know, effectively you might as well be on, we'll say, U.S. soil uh, in the case of our country. For those purposes, here it's a little difficult to to you. You have to do a little bootstrapping because we're talking about orbit of a planet. Um, The law of the sea hasn't yet been extended out to outer space quite yet. But um, the the planet we're on is not sort of a classically like imperial one, right? We're not dealing with coruscant. It's Segra Milo, we have no history on this planet. It's not popped up in, in Star Wars, at least canon to my knowledge. Um, seems like a pretty remote place since Saw picked it to to house his partisan forces. Um, but we'll say just for for purposes of the argument that, that this is an Imperial planet, albeit one that's like really remote. Well, the Empire, uh, if we're using real world laws and, and sort of authorities, would have jurisdiction to enforce laws within a certain range of orbit around the planet. And that goes for things like national defense. So uh, the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, has authority under um, a a potentially really, really broad authority in certain circumstances under uh, 50 United States Code Section 191, which during times of, of war, like by presidential declaration effectively the president can, uh, widely expand the coast guards authority, uh, to, to enforce laws off of our coast, uh, that includes, uh, directing the movement, the anchorage of vessels. So basically controlling, you know, a police officer can do a little bit to, to stop you and, and whatnot on, on shore, but the coast guard can actually direct your movement. And, and as, uh, if, if, uh, Section 191 is is activated within U.S. territorial waters. They can stop you. There's not the same level of of uh, sort of evidentiary requirement that that law enforcement on on land has. And so here the tie in is that uh, the the captain of the arrester cruiser announces that there's been pirate activity or uh, rebel activity. Uh, I can't remember which in the area. So there's criminal activity. This cruiser has presumably been dispatched there for law enforcement purposes, and um, the especially if it's the case of um, uh, sort of rebel or insurgent activity, uh, and and even in some cases pirate activity, there's now sort of this national security hook. And if you look at Section 191, it looks like it reads a lot like something that might be read on the Senate floor in Coruscant, like uh, amongst the floating pods there, uh, because it talks in terms of insurrection and and these broad sort of emergency powers, if you will, that that can be granted. So in this case, I think that if we're applying that law, that arrestor cruiser had the right uh, under the law of the sea to stop the the uh, the cruiser. The moment the transponder is important because in in our world we have flagged vessels. You could be a vessel flagged to the United States or whatever country. It gives them pause that he's he announces that he's from Alderaan. So another core planet. Um, that can affect uh the applicability of of certain laws. Effectively, that's like a um it's not even the same as it like a, a, a police officer in the United States is not prevented from stopping you in Arizona because you have a Pennsylvania tag, but having a different flag on your vessel, or in this case, an Alderanian transponder, air quotes, um, can affect uh, the, the, the scope of law that can be applied to you. So it gives them pause, but I think the captain suspects that something is afoot as he's, Luthan is doing all these, this juggling to keep them uh, delayed. And uh I love the line like, you know, we'll just have it for practice, like keep the boarding crew ready. Uh, we'll we'll give them the practice. So whether the actual pull-in and interdiction was was lawful after the stop, I think depends a lot on what laws are in place at this point. We don't know the extent of the emergency action that the emperor put into place uh in episode two or three, whatever it was. Um uh after the raid i think it's safe to say that he probably baked within that package of emergency amendments expanded the imperial navy's ability to interdict and, and seize vessels so i do think that they had uh authority there uh Luther was just well prepared the, the quote from K- uh, k2 and rogue one like well you're a rebel now that just very much applies to this
0: So a couple other off-the-cuff ideas. Does Luthan have a duty to rescue Krieger and his men? You know, is there a special relationship between them? Or is it okay just to send them to, you know, to be cannon fodder in order to maintain the deep cover that they have in the ISB? Anyone want to take that?
4: I'll, I'll take a crack at it. (laughs) Uh, So the interesting thing about uh, journalism and intelligence that you need to maintain uh, the confidence of your sources and you need to protect your sources because typically they are at varying levels of risk. Um, Recent, uh, a recent example of protection of sources or of allies in what's considered to be enemy territory, more simply put, uh, would be a lot of the visa applications that the US is doing for Afghan nationals that helped the US and our allies um during OIF and OEF. Uh, so you you don't really want to do what Luthan's doing because even though Luther is protecting an incredibly valuable source, you could also see Krieger and his men as people or sources that need to be protected. Some of those people might also have covers. Some of those people might also have their own sources too that could be lost. So from a purely cynical perspective, I understand what Luther is doing, but then also from a military leadership perspective, you you immediately see some of the the fallout to that approach in leadership. So even setting Krieger and all of those people to the side, um, look at Saw's reaction to what Luthen is doing. um, And that is the kind of reaction that you're gonna get from people who learn that that's essentially what you're willing to do or sacrifice um and so that's just kind of it's it's really morally on thin ice if not just not moral
0: i would take it as the opportunity to go let's hit ferrix instead now you'd have to just redirect the force and go we we need to go do this because they won't expect it and then we'll go back and hit you know the other ship yard later, with a when they're not expecting it as well. So there, there's a, you know, they could go. So the Imperials could at least think, you oh, know, hey, there was a connection. They went after Ferrix instead because of Marva's death. It creates the an opportunity for an, another action to take place, and then when Stellsgard or Uh, what's the name of the shipyard that's at play? Spellhouse. Uh, Thomas, do you remember? Does anyone remember?
1: Steven's got it.
4: Yeah.
1: It's spelled with German too. It's S-P-E-L-L-H-A-U-S, which I think is really interesting.
0: Yeah, I was like, this, I took German in high school. So it's like, this looks familiar. So, um, but that way they could at least, you know, give the pretext of save people still carry out mission objectives. So the ISB could go like, oh, they hit it later after hitting Ferrix," mm-hmm. And, you know, so they could, they could plausibly come up with, we weren't compromised. They hit another target because of this funeral that was planned, just as we had planned to launch an operation during the funeral procession as well. So they could, you know, at least come up with that.
1: Do we know the extent yeah. to which um, uh, Luthen is planning the spellhouse operation because it seemed to me like krieger was kind of doing it and and luthan was just trying to get saw to help him um because because ordinarily there's not a duty to rescue anyone unless you put someone in a position of imminent injury um so i'm not sure i'm not sure if that plays into the analysis at
3: all and i, I- remember getting the feeling that krieger and saw that krieger didn't necessarily want saw's help that luther was yeah. just trying to do this to bring everybody together
4: yeah Luthen is luther is trying to play a bigger coordinating role he's he's not really the planner of the operations he's the person that's trying to lead convince cajole cons- like inspire slash blackmail people into cooperating <laughs> working with each other for this this mission and so that's that's kind of where i'm evaluating his actions more from a leadership perspective and a spycraft perspective in, in that way because i mean a lot of military folks say mission first people always and people argue about the implications of what that is whether it's great whether it's terrible but the basic idea behind that is that you have to accomplish your mission but without taking care of your people always then you won't be able to accomplish any missions now or in the future and so what Luthen is doing, I think it's not finding a creative way to figure out how to save Krieger with, like Josh was talking about, without sacrificing having someone on the inside for the ISB. And the funeral is a perfect opportunity to do that, but there are probably multiple other ways to do that, which is get Krieger to get arrested like get some of these people to run into some issues or plan the op earlier. Um, so I I, I know it's kind of a like hindsight almost looking at the show's plot in this way, but I think it's kind of a cop-out for Luthen to just be like, well, this or that, and I'm just gonna let 50 people die.
0: Plus Krieger, yeah, so. Yeah, they, they, plus Krieger,
2: <laughs> yeah. Plus Krieger, is it fifty or thirty? It was thirty,
0: but he he told uh, Lonnie, uh, the ISB informant, fifty. So uh, I would, I would try coming up with another plan that maintains operational security, and it's just bad for recruiting when you purposely get people killed. So it's one thing to send people off to a dangerous mission that has high fatalities. It's another thing to use them as cannon fodder for a distraction.
4: Yep.
3: I wonder how much of Luthen's decision making is motivated off of wanting to throw them off the trail of this Axis person, him. I don't... Because of what... Because of what he tells Saw, like, if we let them do this, they will do this: being intercept and kill Krieger and his men. They'll think they're invincible, and they won't worry about anything else.
0: I, I mean, I get the idea of, you know, preserving the contacts that he has in the ISB by sacrificing, you know, pieces on the chessboard. But that's a lot of pieces on the chessboard to sacrifice for a rook or a knight and yeah uh it's like i you know it's a lot of people to to lose which then makes recruiting harder uh big picture when, as well
4: when, and to jordan's you're making, point oh go, oh, go ahead,
5: ahead. now i was just gonna joke that when you when you cause saw guerrera of all people to raise his eyebrow over a total number of casualties you you know yeah. you're tapped, hitting a nerve yeah
4: and point to Thomas. jordan's point like if you're in Saw's shoes, if you're in anyone's shoes and you know that that happened, you are likely to tell other people that that could happen to you. Like you're like, is wondering, could this happen to me? Could this happen to my people? Um, you you would start, you would have to start questioning Luthen's intentions. Like I think the character within the show truly is wanting the greater good for the rebellion and wants to see the empire fall, but if if Luthan were a real person in real life that I'd spoken to and I was in Saw's shoes, I would 100% wonder about his uh, motives at this point. Like yeah. how much of this is to save his, his own skin?
0: Uh, part of the mystique of all Star Wars stories is it's beyond the hero's journey narrative, but it, it's somebody recognizes an extreme wrong that's about to happen and they take the step to stop the wrong from happening. It you know it dates back to Han Solo going back at the Battle of Yavin and, and saving Luke, so Luke can take the shot. Or Mandalorian, Din Djarin realizing, I'm not leaving the kid with the Empire, and he goes in and rescues the kid. There's always that moment in any Star Wars story we haven't seen that moment here and i wonder if we're about to that Luthen doesn't want all of those people to get killed and he's coming up with a plan b which is why his call with his associate you know highly coded you know she's she's talking him out of doing something and is that Is it saving Krieger and company? Because I I think it would be silly for him to go back to um, uh, Ferex, because that's just asking for trouble.
3: I read that as going to Mm Ferex to look for Andor.
2: Yeah, so did I.
0: Okay,
4: Same.
0: Well, I was the only one in the camp of not Ferrex, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, so.
2: well, there were other choices, but I think after he's gotten himself into that dogfight, he's now changed the risk calculus for himself, even though he might not have had any good choices in that situation. Getting trapped in and, and boarded is probably not a good choice for him either. But now if he does go to Ferrex like he wanted to, he's going to get recognized Right away, um, there's no hiding the Fondor anymore.
0: No, which is why I would think he wouldn't want to do that because he's Mm -hmm. he's going to need a new contingency plan. And he seems to be the type of guy who would have contingency plans for if I'm discovered, I'm now going here and this is the new base of operation.
3: Yeah, and that ship's probably going to be lost in hyperspace pretty soon.
1: Yeah, oh, uh, the poor navigation droid. He's so helpful. He well, might take him
3: out.
0: <laughs> he might be plug and play, you know, just like you know, yeah, like a, like a big USB drive. He just does a little twist and pulls out the droid and pops him into the next ship that's patiently waiting for for him to mm-hmm. show up when when things get real. Now there there's been other speculation with people going like, well, we never see Luthen in Anything else? We didn't see Mon mine anything else. You know, where was she during the Battle of Yavin? I'm gonna go with they moved her to a new location. It's a big galaxy and they're at war. He could be someplace else, uh gearing up, doing what needs to be done. So I, I don't yeah, um, granted, I, I do agree with don't get too attached to anyone uh because we know how a lot of these people meet their end uh but yeah it's it's i wouldn't be surprised uh if if he makes it out and does something else for the rebellion so anything oh oh, what do you do when your teenage daughter wants to get married in a cultish type chant? Do you, do you say no, or do you go, you know what? I do need that 400 grand in order to balance the ledger so I don't get hung. Boy,
5: <laughs> have I got the guy for you.
3: Yeah, like,
4: well,
0: I Such an ugly choice. Such an ugly choice. Because if I had a teenage daughter who was having friends over doing a religious chant That was, oh, I don't know, something that Alistair Crowley wrote. I would not be okay. Like, I would, I would, none of this braid crap. Like, no, like, you're not getting married at age 15, but that's me. Anyone else want to tag in on what do you do when your kid's showing cultish behavior and wants to get married?
1: I just, just to add that Chandrila has always been sort of this, very noble planet. Um, And it's interesting, the show is making it seem like it has kind of some dark um, darkness to it that um, hasn't been represented before.
0: Yeah, a lot of cultures do have weird, weird traditions. This is not one that's not okay. And I don't know if it goes to the fact that only two states in our union prohibit child marriages so maybe maybe that's the message they're trying to send of if it's uncomfortable call your state legislatures but i i dared to dream anyone any other topics anyone wants to address
4: i i mean thomas touched on it briefly but i did want to uh go back to um naval law and how it's like the distances are determined, like what would be international law or the high seas or a country's like territorial waters or close to country's territorial waters. Um, so like the space domain is considered to be a hundred kilometers uh, up from sea level. And you see the, the empire acting more and more fascistic, definitely, but also more like a uh, police state version of fascism as well, because the military is taking on so many uh, police like roles, which is extremely concerning. Um, You would really only see that if martial law is enacted. So Thomas's like reference of that the emergency packages and the things that keep getting passed in the Senate or the decisions that the, you know, executive branch, if you will, of the empire, which is just Palpatine, I guess, um, keeps making is you you see these showing up in what happens to Cassian, why he winds up in prison, how his trial is handled, how he gets arrested, how he's treated in prison, um, but I also think you see it in the interaction with uh, Luther and the Imperial officers, because you have essentially the Imperial Navy stopping someone, his code checks out, they still decide to board anyway, for practice. Can you imagine just like driving down the street, and a tank rolls up? And it's like, we're gonna practice, like stopping you and uh searching your vehicle so it 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 seems pretty standard at this point in the show but it was jarring to me to watch because I just can't I can't imagine like for example us in the United States having the entire branches of forces acting as like soldier police essentially sailor police that kind of thing. So, I, that was you, that was definitely on my mind.
3: You would be shocked and saddened to see some of the justifications I have seen for police stopping people that
4: <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. Like I'm not saying that the the um that civilian law enforcement is like exempt from these rules as well. I just think there's a there's an added level of risk to freedom to have the military Involved Because by and large, the military's job is to kill people and take things or keep things. Fair if point. You
0: will. So funny thing about our Navy, when they're out doing drug interdiction missions, they're actually under Coast Guard command. So it's this fun little legal loophole that they do that they have uh a coast guard contingent on board and if they're going to do a drug stop that the coast guard flag runs up on the destroyer or the aircraft carrier and for that portion of the mission the coast guard's then in command and then when the mission's done the coast guard flag comes down and it's not under coast guard command anymore uh because posse comitatus we don't want the military outright doing law enforcement and the coast guard's you know, the branch of the military that does law enforcement uh, and humanitarian missions. So, like, they get this hybrid uh, mission that's different from the other services. So, the Morgan, you know.
3: So, um, is it like there's a whole other captain on there that's a Coast Guard captain?
0: Yeah, uh, or I don't know if it's a full-blown captain, but whoever's in charge of the Coast Guard contingent, and so that way, the ship's under Coast Guard command for that portion of the mission. Oh. Huh. Yeah, it's uh, fun little things that we have. And uh, yeah, so. Cause... Yeah,
4: well, and military equipment can be used in support of law enforcement missions, too, uh, or even uh, humanitarian missions. That's like when you see... Uh, the guard called out for hurricane relief, for example, uh, or the Guard and Reserves um, using remotely piloted aircraft to help uh, do overwatch of fires in California. That's a, a good local example. Uh, so it's it's not like there can't be that support, but it's the whole like, you you really don't want to have a military chain of command because they're trained very differently than... Law enforcement is different than the business of war, basically.
0: Yeah, it raises the issue of peacekeepers versus peacemakers. And yeah. not always mutually, uh, uh, they go well together. Uh, sometimes they really don't. However, I think that covers everything this episode. And then we're off to the finale, which I am excited for. Uh, This has been, I think, the first truly Emmy-worthy Star Wars show that we've had. Uh, The writing's a step above everything else. And we'll see how it ends. It's also the last episode before Thanksgiving, so I wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. I will be presenting at Fanex, San Francisco, uh, Black Friday, so I'll be on a Nerd Night panel talking Law of the Mandalorian, and... Uh, then we'll do a lawyer's holiday special uh, with Nari Ely and Angela Story. So uh, you will be visited by three lawyers and uh, it should be a rip roaring good time. So uh, everyone, wherever you listen, please uh, leave a review. I want to thank our patron Astro Kangaroo. Others can join as well where I do put early content there and uh, everyone Regardless, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky.